Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Kim Barrett Show. I am your host, Kim Barrett. Now, just on the on the cost structure when it comes to that, because obviously you're not playing, you're not paying for people that don't like it. Like if you were to run a, a similar campaign when you're looking at like Facebook ads, Instagram ads versus YouTube, obviously I understand the creative would probably be different and um, a few different things. But like, what sort of cost differences are you seeing? Because I meant I, I know when I was uh, I was reading some info on you leading into this, someone like one of the suggested uh, chat points was like. Facebook ads are dead. They're so like last century, you know, like YouTube ads are the way of the future. What, uh, what are some of the cost differences that you've seen maybe on your own campaigns or client campaigns? Yeah, so we've had literally dozens of clients that have cut their costs in half or more just by going from Facebook ads to YouTube ads. You know, we have, and this is in all kinds of different industries. So we have people that are kind of in more educational kind of course niches, right? That are selling courses on different things. So we've got somebody who you know sells a, sells a course uh, helping artists and artisans like sell their artwork online. You know, we've got people that are selling kind of stock trading and options trading courses. But we also, of course, have people that are getting solar leads and insurance leads. And, you know, across the board, I'm giving all of these as examples. These are all people that were running on Facebook. We're having problems get, you know, scaling up. Sometimes in some cases, you know, we've had, you know, one of our clients, you know, David, he was having problems even breaking even on Facebook before coming to YouTube. And then once he got on YouTube, not only was he able to start scaling, but he was able in, a, in just a five month period, scale to over $100,000 a month from his advertising. Is there anything that someone could do straight away like obviously they can come and work with you and learn from you and, and get you to, to help their team but is there something that people could do immediately to see like just some aspects so we mentioned earlier energy management and things like that but is there one mm -hmm. thing where you go there's a little easy little something that people could start doing straight away to to see a see a um, increase in performance yeah i think one of the like I mentioned before, there are three pillars of high performance that I believe you can get like the quickest ROI on your time investment, right? Like things like courage and influence, you can kind of do that, but they're much longer plays in my personal opinion, what I've found working in this industry for a couple of years. And that energy clarity and the productivity pieces are where you can really get a good bang for your buck. So I did a training on on basically how to get 300% of the results on 30% of the actions. And I'm happy to share that that link with you so you can put it somewhere if people want to oh, want to take a look at it. But uh, the crux of it is I and I dive into all three of the, the pillars there. But I, I went through one exercise in particular, which is called the law of three. And it's something I learned from in Brian Tracy's Eat the Frog, which is a phenomenal productivity book. Every chapter is a different practice and a lot of them are very similar. Law of three was just the one that always resonated with me and it worked with my clients really well. But that's a good practice that you can go through. So I'll give you the link for that. But before we even get there, the number one thing everyone should always do is audit their day. So for the people listening, they're like, yeah, but Heidi, you worked at the radio station. Yes. Of course, of course you can make friends. I mean, you, got a, <laughs> you got given this whole audience to talk to and then every day you're going into an office with people that have influence in the space of yeah. communication. How do I get started? How, what's, the, what's the thing that I can do to start off with to build a relationship and who should I be building it with? Do I need to look like scope out and who the boss is of 92.9 or is yeah. there like a different way for me to do that? Show the fuck up in your business and that's what people refuse to do. 
they want to pay all this money for a business coach or you know they like think that's the only way but if you start showing up in your business you know what i showed up in my very first breakfast radio job in bunbury and I had no idea what I was doing. I didn't know how many people were listening to the radio show. You know, I didn't just get given that audience, but I worked for it, you know, like by, um, you know, um, building the, like building the relationships beforehand. The reason why I got that job was because I thought outside the box. And when I was at radio school, I sent my shoe to the radio station and said, I've got one foot in the door. Now, I'm, you know, um, I can't wait to get the next one in. You know, and it was stuff like that, that like then they were like, oh my God, like she's thinking outside the box because of a relationship. I'd get on the phone, I'd make, like I'd make them know who I am. If you're not showing up and you're just hiding, going like, oh, what else can I do now? And because believe me, people have amazing ideas, especially the women that I'm working with, they have incredible ideas. You need to start showing up, coming out from behind the logo. I don't even have a logo. I realized this week, I don't have a fucking <laughs> logo. Like for my whole business, and I've got over 60 women in my program. I've made my radio wage in my first year of business. It's been hard and challenging, but you know, people need, you need to show up and you need to actually build those relationships by talking, like send deep, like, you know, sliding, like you've got new followers, like send them a video message back and say like, oh my God, thank you so much for following me. How did you find me? I always ask them, you know, have they had a stalk yet? What have they found? Have they found my clock candle yet? <laughs> That's a story for another day. <laughs> you know, like when, like, so do you know what I mean? Like, it's so important that we like, and you could read, if you rang the, the radio station, right? Because no one else probably is doing that. You know, like it's, it's thinking of those things. And yes, I was gifted with a breakfast radio show. And so I built my profile and everything, but everything that I've built over the last 10 years is literally what I teach. Is there a question that I should have asked you that I, I haven't opened up? Oh, I don't know. It's a great question in itself. Cause uh, I mean, questions really drive our focus and, and the way that we think. And I think that most people actually aren't good at asking questions. I talk to a lot of business leaders and a lot of business teams, and the biggest issue that they have is that they just don't ask good questions to get the right answers that they need. Um, so it's a great, great question. Look, I think probably the the best question that I get asked is, you know, if I had to give one piece of advice, what would that question be? And I'm going to answer my own question, but it's it's really to be yourself. If you look at great philosophical texts and religions and so on, they've always spoke about this idea of knowing yourself and then being thyself. And I think in this day and age, it's so easy with social media and, you know, the schooling system and so on that we get put through where it can, it can get so easy to become distracted by everything that you're not. And then you try to make up those gaps between wanting to be everything, but at the same time, you lose yourself in that process. And the more you lose yourself in a process, the harder it is to try and navigate through life. So, you know, I think the best thing that people can do is really invest in yourself to figure out who you are, what you're here to do and really build your own life map. It's been the greatest gift that I've ever been able to give people. I, I, what I've found is that no matter no matter who I've worked with, and I've, I've worked with a whole bunch of different types of people from people with anxiety, depression, suicide, addiction, all of that sort of stuff, right through as I'm into professional athletes and so on. And what I've found is that if you keep focusing on the problem, you just get more of the same problem. So you don't really solve the problem. You know, I find that in society, a lot of people think, well, if we can talk about a problem, we can keep bringing it up and we can talk about it more and more and more, and we can make awareness around this fucking problem that it will solve the problem and it doesn't. What I've found is that if you can give a person greater greater meaning in their life, they'll no, it'll normally create greater drive. And then when they have greater drive, they'll have a greater reason to overcome their problems. 
And what I've also, what I know is true, in life, you just solve one problem, you create another problem. I think one of the greatest problems is that people think that they're going to fucking solve their problems and you never, ever will. It's just that you'll create another one. Okay, it's part of the law of entropy in physics. So why not enjoy the process of solving problems and why not have a reason or a meaning to do it, which comes down to really why we're here. Me, I always say, say if you're a business owner or if you're someone who is investing in yourself and wanting to have better wealth and grow, you really become an alchemist, which is like, cool, you can turn anything into gold, money, you know, results for yourself. It's in in like exponential rate of result on yourself because, you know, I look at it from a marketing perspective. It's like, cool, I click a few buttons. I put up an ad. People inquire. Yeah. I speak to them. They give me money for me to help them do the same thing. I'm like, man, that's like, to me, it's like, I just made money come from nothing by typing. You know what I mean? Like I just typed and put up an ad and then suddenly people inquire and then, you know, we've, we've got sales and we've got a business that's growing. So I wholeheartedly agree with all your points that you said there. Now, if someone like when people first come to you, because obviously like, and I, I love that you've got a, a more, I'll say like esoteric approach to money and wealth and growth. Like what are some of the things that you see a lot? And again, as I say, like all over the world or, or even locally, what are some of the mistakes that people are making with their wealth or with their money? Obviously you mentioned a few already that mistakes that people can make being like, I'm just going to hope and just put money away and do nothing. Yeah. But is there anything that you see like quite consistently across the body? Like, Shouldn't have done so, that. Shouldn't have done that. Yeah, two two things, and and really take this in context. I a lot of times are are critical on people that make a lot of money that just wastefully invest it. So so for instance, I think the number one mistake I see in in this category of people that have a lot of potential is they make money, they want to do the right thing, but they invest it in assets and other things that don't actually give them the, the result that they want. So it's like on, on one hand, I there's the story of a business owner that's killing it in business could reinvest in their own business and continue to grow, took a lot of their money, invested it in other investments that are not necessarily liquid. They had, they had, you could maybe get an eight, nine, 10, 12% rate of return. And what you're doing is you're starving your business and dramatically potentially taking yourself out of business to maybe get a good rate of return. And I look at that and go that you're, you're being dumb. Like, why are you doing that? Why are you starving this thing that's feeding you to begin with? Well, that's a really key thing. And so if you're running a business today and it's not self-managing, you should be doing everything you can to have that business self-managing for lots of reasons, but mostly because it'll it'll drive value up. Recurring revenue. Recurring revenue is a really big piece of driving value up. The more that you can introduce and implement recurring revenue into your business, the higher the value your business is going to be. And when we analyze businesses, I mean, there's just two examples, Kim, but they're probably 10 to 12, depending on the type of business that you run, that we'll consult with you on to see how you score against each of those and where the opportunities are to, to grow value and prepare your business. I love that. I think that's so, it's such a big one, which is the, you know, how big a part you are of the business, because there's so many businesses that you see out there and it's like, yeah, you know, someone goes away, you know, the owner goes away for a week or a, a month on holiday and comes back 
and it's like literally the you know the walls have fallen down the roof's caved in everything has to be kind of rebuilt now is there obviously that's a really big one and a really important one but is there anything else that you see when you look at a business and you're like immediately you go like this is going to drop the value of the company straight away obviously that one with the business owner being the big part of the company but is yeah. there anything else on top of that one where you go if something is this is happening it just drops that that valuation straight away there are, there are, yeah there are a number of things one would be client concentrations so does any one or two clients represent more than 10 20 30 percent of the business the more that your revenues are consolidated into a handful of clients the higher the risk for a buyer and so especially if the owner has a lot of those relationships themselves now a buyer is thinking oh my goodness so much of the revenue is tied to just this handful of clients and the owner has the relationships lots of risk it's not that a business like that can't be sold but it's going to be sold at a lower value and there might be deal structures that are implemented so that the buyer has some risk mitigation so that if, if things go bad they can recalibrate the purchase price of the business so i i see that a lot not maintaining proper financials is another big one. Sometimes people can treat their businesses as their personal piggy banks. And when you do that, you actually diminish the value of the business for lots of reasons. One, buyers tend to not get total comfort that, you know, some of the things that you've done personally really are personal. There's, there's, you know, there's a blurry line between what's personal expenses that are going through the business and what's really business. And so obviously you mentioned you come in and like obviously taking a business from seven figures to eight or nine as a as an exit is not really a, it's not an easy feat by any stretch of the imagination from from what I could imagine from the outside kind of looking in. What if you were to collate all the deals that you've done and all the deals you've probably looked at over the years, is there one thing glaringly obvious that you see people when they're trying to scale up, you know, they've gone, look, I want to scale up my business and grow towards an exit or something like that, that they're just doing glaringly wrong. And you're like, hmm. like everyone seems to do this, like a couple of things wrongly when they're trying to grow. Maybe it's from an intra infrastructure perspective or something like that. Is there anything that you kind of notice as a commonality across, across all of the businesses that's maybe hindering them from that growth? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it, it is the question. It comes down to one very, very simple answer. And then there's some things I'll unpack as part of that answer. But people who are good at starting businesses, so really classic entrepreneurs, are not necessarily that good at scaling them. And the reason for that is it takes a very different skill set when you transition into what we call scale up. And I'll define that in a second. And it takes a very, very different mindset. And a lot of people ask me, what's the definition of scale up? And there's different ways of cutting this, but my, my favorite way of answering that question is, it's the ability to do two things brilliantly, the ability to lead and build teams and to work with process and structure. So two guys in a shed can create Google, but as soon as you, know, you have to have any more than say 12 to 15 employees in your business, then you have to change how you operate. And this is, this is the, the big thing. A lot of people struggle with that transition of their identity as a leader, and that's where things start to go wrong. Now, that's not to say that the entrepreneur who's great at starting a business can't change how he comes across and leads and all those things to become great at scale up. But history will prove that lots of really big businesses that we see out there, a lot of times when that business is going through that transition, they have to bring other people in, sometimes even new CEOs who are good at that next part of the journey. Well, when I, when I started my own mastermind, I knew not what to do. So I was like very, very pleased by that. 
you know. Yeah. And, and look, again, he was the inspiration that got me started. I wouldn't have even, if it wasn't for his $37 ebook, I, it wouldn't have changed the way that I look at everything that I do now. Yeah, that was mm. the starting point. But it, it just highlights it. And every time I sort of share that story, it's more so for people, because I know you've got a lot of people who follow you who do run coaching programs and they they do run masterminds. And, and what was happening, I, I literally shut down prior to starting this agency a seven-figure consulting company where I had a mastermind where literally all I was – like the the delivery of it was I had like four two-day events every year and then we got group coaching, right? And it was it was a million-dollar-a-year business and I shut it down out of – it just didn't feel right to me. that Like the model was created to suit me and not my clients and i felt very incongruent with that now what it doesn't it didn't mean they weren't getting results and i wasn't giving them my best because i'd work like a you know like a racehorse to really try and provide and give and give and give and i'd do random calls and coaching calls outside of what they were getting but that's not the point the point here is that i built something based off what's going to best suit me right and i and i knew at the time i was like i oh, just just didn't feel like the right thing you know because it's easy to fall in love with the the model being pushed out there that it, you should do three three events a year and you know you can do a group call every month or this or that. It's like now I'm not saying that doesn't work and it's not good for certain people in certain businesses, but you can't put everyone in the same basket. That's when that's when you get not the greatest success rate. You know? Yeah, so, so true. Yeah, and I wish I wish more people would think of it like that because obviously, even still today, because that is something that is you know recommended, and you've got even the likes of you know Tony Robbins, Dean Graziosi, and stuff selling their whole mastermind program and telling people that's somewhat how it should be. When yeah, as you say, it's not definitely not a one size fits all approach for sure. Looking and assessing people and going, oh, like maybe we can reach out to them. Is there anything that you go? This is a red flag that maybe other people may not know because as you said you've been doing this for a while now so you've got the experience and you probably know straight away like no not not looking at these people is there anything that's a red flag where you go yeah stay away from this type of influencer so say for instance because we just launched curve sculpting uh, which is our waist trainer it's really it's really hard to sort of determine when say for instance you see a blogger and they show a lot of their body like you know a lot of nudeness and you're like, okay, great. Oh, you know, I'm going to get this influencer because she has so many following. But then if you got to look back again, like how many of those are male? So you got to really determine that. And then what another thing that I actually look for is um, favor influencer reach out to us. Yes, they have a hundred thousand or a couple hundred thousand following. And then I look through their Instagram and then I see like a lot of the males commenting or like random businesses. And then I would go, okay, because you're going to look out for the, like the engagement pods. Like if they're just seeing engagement pods and other businesses commenting on them. So then I would go in and look at the accounts and how you figure this out is you click on the business and you go to their page and see if they comment back on their post. So that's kind of like how I determine things because you can say, oh, there's so much comments, but is it legit from their customers asking how much, what's this product? Or are they just another brand who was in, an engagement pod just commenting so there's so much to it though it's really fun <laughs> so the people would really take the time so it's like don't just go oh i want to use influencers and then yeah. oh this guy says a thousand bucks great pay it you've got to do that research you've got to go down a few layers yeah. you can't just be like all right yeah cool let's do it so 
did all of them work exactly as you wanted to when you started no, using them? No, absolutely not. No. Yeah. So like, I wish. Ones like that where people like, cool, you've got to pay five grand to be a part of versus doing one where you're doing stuff collectively with your like uh, local business buddies. Mm-hmm. What do you, what's your, is, do you have a different viewpoint on that or is it still the same thing? I mean, you need to decide what's right for your business, mm. ultimately. Those big giveaways where they're like, win eight million Louis Vuitton bags. Yeah. Yeah, awesome. But also the, <laughs> those brands have a way bigger budget. Yeah. So for small businesses, which I work with a lot of small businesses, there's no point me saying to them, you need to go buy a Louis Vuitton bag and give it away to your clients. Otherwise, this isn't going to work for you. Mm. So you've got to look at the audience. You've got to look at what your business can yeah. do. Well, I mean, more so because those ones, for example, you can buy into them, right? So yeah. you can pay between like two and five grand and be a part of those. Like, does that- Oh, do I agree with that? Yeah, like if compared to doing your own giveaway where if say let's say you and i did a giveaway mm. similar businesses similar audiences and we go hey we're going to do a combined giveaway follow brooke follow kim as yeah. part of it versus like hey follow these 65 accounts that are got part what of you're saying i probably wouldn't want to do the other option because you've got to think about your audience mm. who actually has a need for the product or service that you offer and in those kind of giveaways they're probably not people that are ever going to buy off you or interact with you or will probably unfollow you as soon as the promotion's over which kind of defeats the whole purpose yeah so i would say you know for most small businesses it would be more beneficial to just do your own yeah yeah we actually should do that we should do a combination mm-hmm.